Welcome to the Digital Responsibility Podcast. There is a vibrant community around the world exploring how we drive forward digital innovation, products and services, and generally exploit technology progression for the sustained benefit of society and the planet. On this podcast, you will hear from me, Christopher Joynson, and Rob Price, two of the original founders of Corporate Digital Responsibility. As we speak to our guests, to hear their stories and piece together what it means to be responsible in the digital age. If you'd like to learn more, take a look at the website, corporatedigitalresponsibility.net. Welcome to the 10th episode of season four of the Digital Responsibility podcast. I'm delighted to be joined tonight by Arthur Guagua from uh, the Netherlands at the moment, but Arthur, I'll let you kind of describe how you got to where you're doing, what you're doing in the Netherlands. Um, and for the second time in a row, um, Josh, welcome. Um, Thank you. Keen, keen to kind of keep you in the loop on on this mini series as part of the season where we're talking about tech bias, especially. But Arthur, over to you. Tell us a bit about yourself. Introduce yourself to the listeners. Uh, I started off as a lawyer a human rights lawyer in Zimbabwe uh, during the Mugabe era, uh, late 90s, when you know human rights violations were climaxing in Zimbabwe. And then by chance or coincidence, uh, around about 2013, I got into human rights and technology. In fact, I was recruited by Kali Neist or Kali Kind, who is the executive director of the Ada Lovelace Institute in London, but she was working for Privacy International then. And then we were working mostly on the right to privacy, uh, you know, pushing for the mandate on the right to privacy at the United Nations. And uh, then that's how I got into, you know, technology, digital technology and human rights. And then when uh, artificial intelligence uh, started to become a hot topic around about in 2017, I also started looking at their ethical implications of artificial intelligence in addition to you know, digital rights. Um, then I also realized, well, I need to know about you know, the conceptual framing or the theoretical foundations of what I'm talking about. That's how I ended up you know, working in philosophical ethics of technology at Utrecht University here in the Netherlands. And, and that timing is so um, similar. I think when the first time that we spoke, I talked about, I, I started talking about digital ethics and the impact on broader society very much around 2016, kind of at the time of, I guess, questions that were beginning to be asked around the impact on democracy, Cambridge Analytica, the elections in the US, the Brexit vote in the UK. So, so similar times. And 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 how did you find it? Um, what that that trigger in 2013 that that started you focusing more on the technological impact on um, human rights and democracy? Were there specific events at that time that that triggered that? Um, how, what why yeah why then? Um, I think uh, that's when, you know, the United Nations and also civil society across the world uh, began to realize that authoritarian governments were beginning to take a hold on 
the cyberspace. It became a new battleground for human rights violations. But it wasn't just you know, applying to traditional authoritarian countries. That's when we had uh, the riveting um, disclosures by, by Edward Snowden about the uh, NSA and uh, also the UK programs on, on surveillance. So it really became a hot issue among human rights practitioners at Human Rights Watch, International, Pri Privacy International, about a few other organizations in, in the United States. So Edward Snowden revelations, I think, actually became a trigger. Yeah, cool. Um, and you've obviously you've had like a long history now working for like digital ethics now you're in philosophical ethics and you just touched upon like Edmund Snowden and that type of thing um what would you say was like the biggest shock to you coming into this industry in terms of things that weren't in place that you thought would have been what would you say was the biggest one that was like I can't believe this is not a thing in regards to like digital ethics or philosophical ethics uh I, I think Back then, because our understanding of you know, human rights or maybe even I think technology governance was sort of like I think in black and white, we, we thought maybe the perpetration of human rights was you know, coming from China, Russia, and you know, the like-minded regimes. Uh, but I think the Edward Snowden uh, case um, spot spotlighted that I think the issue of human rights you know, violations sometimes also happens in established you know, democracies. Um, so I think for me, it was also a beginning of us uh, uh, beginning to also focus on the big tech because the, the big tech, I think if, if we look at the development at the United Nations, we used to talk about state surveillance. We used to t talk about state's uh, obligation to protect human rights. So the language of responsibility of the big tech wasn't quite there yet, but 2013, 2014, and then 2015, when Navi Pillay was the High Commissioner for Human Rights. So the language of the big tech, whom, uh, because we used to think that you know the big technology companies are our saviors for the future. So it was the uh, you know the conspiracy or their unholy alliances you know they were having. With governments, you know, producing technologies or deploying technologies that violate human rights was a wake-up call for the human rights community. And, and I think I remember at the same time working for a European organization, very much watching Europe react to big tech in the US, thinking um, needed to create European capability in that space to almost ensure uh, ability to compete with the US. Um, but at the same time, we're also seeing now, even I mean, even last week, we were reading about an organization that was seen to be involved in impacting elections in a number of countries around the world, which, as you say, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily any one place, it was Africa, it was Europe, it was US, um, etc. So I'm, I'm interested to know how things are perceived, or if things are perceived differently in terms of certainly what you've seen in uh, in the Netherlands and in the European view from, for example, when you were in Africa. So how, how's big tech and the impact seen 
is it is it something to fear is it something that can be controlled is it something to be better governed is there is there a difference in terms of how africa versus europe looks at it for example i think i think uh, africa has been slow to realize you know the impact of t technology on uh, not just in you know, a society, but you know, human rights, and you know the, the way we live, you know, generally. Um, because I, I think most of the technology gadgets, like you know, the Apple products or maybe Huawei products, were more like I think shiny toys for their autocrats, you know, their and and the middle class in Nairobi, in Johannesburg, and the big cities in in Africa. But we we're slow in responding to the negative impact of, of the, those technologies because i think there was a shared understanding between the middle class and the even autocratic regimes that you know technology is good for us you know the vision for the future that we are now able to communicate we are now able to um then um and then also i think when you're looking at the right to privacy i think it was european union european countries have been so much alive to the right to privacy and then in africa um, most human rights defenders normally talk about privacy is not relevant to us but then we are beginning to see the intricate link between privacy and security that i think is not just you know violation of privacy but violation of privacy leads to uh, consequences, bad consequences, even I think fatal consequences where uh, their information that is uh, mined by autocratic, autocratic governments can actually be used to track dissidents or to, 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 to persecute people in the off, offline world. So yeah, Africa is beginning to awaken to the negative impact of these technologies, but only now. And, and whose responsibility do you think it is to minimise those negative impacts? Is is it individual governments? Is it a, a global body like the UN or, or the European Commission? Or who, who do you see as being able to make the most significant positive impact? Yeah, I think obviously it should be the United Nations, uh, but also other norms and standard setting bodies like you know the united uh, the african union um but as we know the united nations i think probably i'm going to address this later that sometimes it is ineffective because i think the very countries that are uh, whose governments are in concert with the big tech that are exporting uh, these maybe technologies that uh, human rights violating are the ones you know that have got normative leadership at the united nations so it really becomes i think tricky for us to exclusively rely on the united nations but i think also at the united nations we, we began to see like you know 10 years ago the fragmentation in terms of you know normative approaches you know to the governance of you know, technology so that brings about you know polarization between the human rights respecting countries and those that insist on uh, what is called the state-centric model of inter technology governance. But I think the European Union as well has a role to play because currently uh, and globally, it's only the European Union that has the leverage and the agency 
to govern Silicon Valley and Shenzhen. Because it's only the European Union right now that has got a raft of laws that is clawing back on the power of big tech. So the European Union has to keep on insisting when it is defending the European space. I think it should also uh, expand that mandate to defend you know, the, the, the global space. Um, then I think finally, when you look at the European Union, I think some of the technologies that are human rights violated come from the European Union, especially the biometric dual use you know, technologies. The European Union should strengthen its dual use uh, regulation in order for it to rein on uh, the European companies that are exporting dual use technologies to Africa that might be used for human rights violations. Just on, on the point of the European Union, I mean, you're right, obviously, with the introduction of GDPR a number of years ago, DMA, DSA, uh, AI uh, regulations on their way, etc. Then, then clearly, kind of, there is a stance that's being taken. I think by the end of last year, it was something like three billion in fines across 217 different um, uh, organisations that have been fined. Will that do? You, and I'm asking the lawyer in you in in terms of that. Do you think that that will be successfully enforced? There's a debate, isn't there, around um, those organisations having effectively the power to um, defend and fight those fines, and therefore, is it a deterrent that will truly have an impact because it can be enforced, or or, or is it something that's just making people think twice, perhaps? I think the big fines, yeah, no, they sound okay in, in principle, but I think, well, there's the issue of enforceability. But also, I think it's only now when the big technology companies are beginning to uh, feel, I, I think, experience a decline in profits. But I think let's talk about maybe two years ago. Uh, some of these fines, maybe even, I think, a hundred million meant nothing to Facebook back then or to Google mm. or to TikTok or you know some of these you know big technology companies because they are like you know premiership footballers you know they with <laughs> humongous amounts of money I think let, let, let me just maybe draw parallels I think the premiership footballer who gets fined for a foul <laughs> maybe 20,000 you know for example someone who's playing for Chelsea or Manchester United that's more like, I think, a drop in an ocean. Uh, so the fines, I think for me, yes, you know, they sound good in principle, but I think what is also actually needed is who is benefit, benefiting from those fines. So those fines actually go on to support big economies like the UK or the European Union or the United States. So if the fine goes to the United States, for example, it is simply money that is going back to the same country that is causing you know their the, the problems so i want to see a situation where the fines uh, that are being levied against you know the big tech benefiting the most vulnerable markets in africa and in, in, and in asia but we need uh, more measures i think we need teeth we need more stricter regulations um in terms of you know controlling the big tech uh, in addition to the fines that aligns really well with the CDR principles in the sense that key to principle one is advocating for better regulation that that 
that ensures people are beginning to react. Let's let's switch though to some of the um, research and the work that you're doing now. So it'd be good to hear a bit more about how how you're collaborating, who you're working with, what you're finding out, and especially thinking about the, I mean, as you said earlier on, getting into that philosophical kind of side of use of technology and some of the ethical decision-making around that. Yeah, currently I'm working on a number of papers. Uh, So what we do is we, within, we have got a consortium of Dutch researchers, uh, which I'm part of, uh, where we look at the ethics of socially disruptive technology. So it's called ESTED. Uh, so what we basically do is to look at how these emerging technologies, about 60 emerging technologies, from machine learning to artificial intelligence, you know, to biomimicry, to synthetic biology, how these technologies are disrupting uh, not only, I think, our social lives, but the concepts and the values to which we appeal when uh, we appeal to, you know, moral thinking and reasoning. So yeah, um, so w- one of the issues that I'm looking at is you know issue of you know political agency, but also self determination, not just of individuals but of groups of people in the digital era. How is social media changing you know self determination? How uh, algorithm infrastructure is changing the whole issue about self determination? Because we've been seeing uh, in the context of the global south a lot of you know digital foreign interference. You spoke about Cambridge Analytica at the beginning, but uh, it's much more, I think, serious than that, because I think the issue of domination or digital foreign interference is 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 simply more than what Cambridge Analytica did. It's about how markets are changing. It's about how value chain chains are being you know, reconfigured. Uh, the economic realm, the social realm, the political realm how they are being configured by big data in combination of al- and with algorithms. So what I'm doing is you know, to uh, look at that from a philosophical angle to see, I think, what sort of values, the value of unity in Africa, the value of Ubuntu, uh, the value of harmony and consensus in our society, how those values are being appended by you know, the introduction of big tech especially the agentic powers, because you know, they've got power of agency to make decisions of consequences. And in most uh, si- serious situations, you know, they can actually not just you know, replace human agency, but gatekeep decisions of consequences in elections and other political events. So that's what I'm investigating at the moment, but also how nations or nations should relate to each other in the future especially the current you know, geopolitical positioning and repositioning the uh, pursuit of uh, strategic autonomy, the pursuit of you know, dominance in, in, in the digital. What does it mean for the, for the future world? How should nations relate to each other? So one of the papers I'm working on currently for the University of Munich, I'm working with Bev Townsend, my friend who is based at the York University and at Oxford University. We are talking about how Africa should respond to geopolitical positioning between China, the United States and the European Union, that Africa should remain non-committal, should remain neutral, and should 
defend, I think, the future facing a self-determination in the digital in light of, you know, the pursuit for domination by the big powers. It's, it's fine. Um, it was, so the things you talked about, they are so vast, so broad. Where do you start? Like, where do you begin with that research? What's your first point that you go to? Because I can imagine when you start in one place, it can just lead you to like a cascade of multiple different places. So how do you zone in on what to focus on initially and then go from there? I think what I did with my supervisors, uh, Jory Anderson and Dorothea Gadeka, we said, well, we, we debated for weeks, what's the most important value among Africans and including African diaspora, you know, the Caribbean and African-Americans. So we, we examined political discourse from the time of Du Bois, that is when he was writing 100 years ago, Kwame Nkrumah, and then what we call African philosopher kings, like, you know, Senko of Senegal, Kenneth Kaunda. What did they used to talk about? So we, they used to talk about unity, that African people should be united, should, they should work together. So my starting point, actually, one of my starting points was to visit Ghana, you know, the, where slavery began, where we found a number of big eminent philosophers, like, you know, Kwasi Wiredu and, and, Kwame Jeche. And so I spoke to Ghanaians, say, what exactly do you value? Well, some said consensus, some said harmony. Southern Africa, they said Ubuntu. And then I sort of like, I think, looked at a baseline of all those philosophers and, 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 and the interviews that I was doing. And then I, re I realized that Africans uh, pride in unity, in doing life and doing politics in unity. So that was my starting point. And then I looked at how technologies like, you know, biometric and data-centric technologies are fragmenting unity, how they are undermining unity, how they are causing or amplifying ethnic tensions and uh, tearing, you know, so communities apart in the Kenyan elections, but in South Africa, now in Nigeria, how, how the Huawei technology is undermining the ethos of unity and harmony in African communities. So that was my starting point, talking to Africans, especially Ghanaians, and also in South Africa, which is sort of like, you know, the cradle of, for, for humankind. Okay, that's, that's really cool. You um, briefly touched, because I'm Nigerian myself, so when you were speaking, I was just like, I know exactly what you're talking about. Like, I know the emphasis they have on culture and unity but they also I know the discourse they have when it comes to things like politics and that kind of stuff so it's really interesting to hear that yes because I think when you look at today uh, the Asian Nico uh, which is uh, one of the publications in Asia, I was interviewed about the role of you know Huawei in the current Nigerian in forthcoming uh, Nigerian elections how technology is appending the democratic landscape. So I was alongside my friend Valentin Weber at the German Council of Foreign Relations. I was interviewed to uh, give an opinion on how Chinese technology is going to change uh, to uh, impact on their course and outcome of the elections. So yes, Nigeria is very, very important because we have got very important philosophers from Nigeria too, like Ife Menkiti, but uh, Uchena Okeja, is one of the temp temporary, uh, sorry, contemporary 
philosophers who speaks about agency, deliberative agency. And then I connect that, what Uchena Okeja's deliberative agency to technologies to see how deliberative agency is being undermined by uh, modern technologies. It, it's a brilliant introduction into um, a favourite topic of the last week or so in some of the conversations I've had, which has been around uh, AI in the context of large language models. Um, and, and the debate that we were having the other night was, was, was thinking about how those models have been fed in the context of materials. So the, the, the internet, Wikipedia, books, etc. But of course, the majority of that material has been English from a language point of view. And of course, an identity of a country or a, a culture or, or a group of countries is not simply the set of language that's used in a book. It's also kind of many more things, some of which we've just been talking about there. So, so I'm interested in, um, we would, I'd just been to Norway last week. So, so uh, there are 5 million Norwegians who speak Norwegian. So uh, how how is that? As a, as a language represented in the context of as people start to use large language models to um, assist, accelerate, enable the delivery of whatever it might be, either in an enterprise or in life or, or things like that. I'm interested in, an, in your perspective, I, I guess from both an Africa point of view, but, but absolutely in the research that you're doing, how do we find a path through that in terms of um, maintaining diversity of culture and, and, and thought in an age of mass adoption of AI, whether large language models or otherwise? On one hand, I would imagine that technology is a way to preserve that conscious of, of disappearing languages on a, on, a, on a regular annual basis. But at the same time, I also have a, a, a fear of, homogenization we all be, we all kind of um end up at the same end point uh, what what's your thoughts on on that area when i i think the current you know debate on chat g gbt or DOE and, and all that i think it's been ongoing i think you know about five five four months ago we were talking about sentient uh, where the AI has become sentient. So I know it's uh, very exciting, you know, to Europeans. And uh, yeah, it is a good development that we've got huge language models, you know, that can, you know, change, you know, the way we do things. Because I think I can imagine, I think the generation of our children, I think won't really be focusing on some of the skills that we need today, I think these are the things are going to become easier uh, in the same way when Google search engine was introduced. Probably, I think we're having the same debate. That's, you know, the positive. But I think that the negative is it has got more to do with a level at which, you know, the debate is happening. Because the debate on huge language models is happening at Eurocentric level. It's questioning and, and poking the values, the European values, whether those models embody the European values, um, which are, has got more to do with the liberal individual, you know, autonomy, explainability, and, you know, stuff like that. But do those values truly capture African values about 
maybe the, the metaphysics of human being. So I think for the Africans, we have to start questioning that the, the large language models, you've got agency, they've got certain level of agency in, in terms of you know, what they perform, in terms of you know, their cognitive abilities. But in whose image are they created? Uh, in terms of culture, in terms of language, but, but in, in terms of you know, issues, you know, they articulate. So they are simply perpetuating, I think the issues that we're talking about in their past you know, 20 years, digital divide, data divide, and then the inclusion of African data sets. So the inclusion of African data sets also includes you know, the inclusion of culture and the inclusion of um, values. So the challenge I think that we have with the large language models is as Africans is, should we even be involving ourselves in, in the current debate? Because it is pitched, I think, at the wrong level. Because I think what we need to do is, I think, to go back to when we were talking about how data sets uh, and you know, training data uh, support you know, these machine learning models. That, that's where we need to go back because the agents, the new socially interactive agents that we are talking about do not in any uh, way you know, represent you know, African conception of you know, personhood. So where, where do we go? Uh, either as Africans, we simply embrace the English language as a universal language and say, well, fair and fine. There's no way every African language is going to be embodied in the digital. Or we find our way to say, well, uh, perhaps we, we need a, a reflection of our own languages for language preservation. It, it's, it, it's an interesting problem because English is a language as well, is an African language. And I know it's, it's, it's contested, but it's a language that we adopted you know, centuries ago. So I think at the end of the day, maybe the focus shouldn't just be on language, should be on values. That's what I think. It should be on values, not just you know, on, on language. I mean, it's a massive topic, isn't it? Josh, it comes back to your point of, of it is so all-encompassing. It is so expansive that not only where do you start, but actually what do you do next to make a bigger difference? So I guess that's probably my final question, Arthur. What what next? What What's the key thing that you'll be looking at over the next year or two um, as, as part of your continued journey to, to make a positive impact in this um this new world that we're in, which is kind of a highly digital, highly tech, impacting far broader than kind of just the businesses in terms of its adoption, but all of us from a societal point of view, what's what's your next thing? Um, I, I think these are big issues uh, that can be addressed at, at a high macro level, meso level, but also I think micro level. I, I think at a big political organization level, I think what is actually needed is for African governments you know, to stop politicking or taking uh, positions that protect their narrow political interests and begin to invest in collective agency or arguments that preserve you know, the determination, self-determination of African groups. And the de self-determination of African nations and groups uh, 
should not necessarily be against, I think what I call interference. Interference, maybe they say, well, we don't like English language. We don't like, you know, the British or we prefer the Chinese or we don't like this country. I think that's the level of politics. But where we need to go as Africans is at a time when most countries or blocs are either fighting for strategic autonomy or for domination in cyberspace. European Union with its big tech, America with its own big tech. Africa should be thinking about a future of how to attain uh, digital strategic autonomy or which block to align itself with. I think the European Union is coming up with a very impressive you know, legislation at the moment, which if I think Africans were to uh, al al align themselves with the European Union and improve on those laws, I think the Brussels effect can actually have a positive impact in, in the world. So we want an Africa that is not just you know, taking self-interested political positions to say, oh no, we don't want interference because the digital world needs interdependence. We cannot talk of independence or non-interference, but what we need to talk about is non-domination. And non-domination is not actually being echoed in the African Union discourse at the moment. I would just like to say, probably I can speak for everyone listening, thank you for giving us your time and it's basically speaking to us today. I feel like it's been a really insightful conversation. I've learned a lot. And I just want to ask, where can us, can people hear from you, hear about your work or what you're doing? Like, where's the rest of Arthur's work going to be so we can keep up with your studies and your research? Part of the ethics of socially disruptive technologies, uh, which is one of the biggest research consortium here in Holland. So I think if you go on ethics of socially disruptive technologies, uh, and then maybe the acronym and then dot nl that's where you find most of the work that we are doing um well if you follow me on linkedin as well under arthur guagua i post most of the stuff you know that i'm doing and you know there's a very active community of philosophers and ethicists of technology within my cycles thank you thank you